Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to this event uh, that's co-sponsored by the Department of International Relations as part of the, um, the LSE's um, <clears throat> Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative. My name is uh, William A. Callahan. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And today we've gathered together um, experts to discuss um, sort of China's worldview, China's political worldview and Chinese exceptionalism. Um, it's gonna be a broad discussion, but we're basing our discussion on uh, a recent book by the same name, China's Political Worldview and Chinese Exceptionalism by Dr. Benjamin Ho, uh, who is an, an assistant professor in the, in the China program in the S. Rachatanran School of International Studies, RSIS, at national at the um, Nanyang Nanyang University of Nanyang Technical University of Singapore. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I always get names mixed up. Um, ben, I mean, I know him very well. He's a good friend and excellent colleague. Uh, he he obtained his PhD from the Department of International Relations here at the LSE, and uh, this is his first book. So we're here um, to sort of. Uh, interrogate the book and interrogate Ben, but we're also here to celebrate it because it's an excellent book and I recommend everyone uh, not just read it, but to buy it, uh, buy it and read it. Um, so Ben is going to talk to us for about 10 to 15 minutes and then we'll go to our panel. First to Dr. Beverly Loke, uh, who is a lecturer in international relations at the Department of Politics, University of Exeter. Um, her, her research interests include Great Power Responsibility, Chinese Foreign Policy, and the Politics of Hegemonic Ordering in East Asia. And then uh, the panel will round up with Dr. Joseph Chinhong Liao, who is the Dean of the College of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. So with no further ado, I uh, pass it over to uh, Dr. Benjamin Ho, who will talk for 10 to 15 minutes. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I've got some slides, so let me just allow me to share my screen. All right. Um, good evening uh, and good afternoon. And for maybe some of us here, uh, good morning. Uh, it's always uh, quite different doing some of these events on Zoom because of, of the time difference um, all over the world. Uh, once again, thank you so much, uh, Bill, for your kind introduction. Uh, Blase Pascal once said that authors should speak of our book rather than my book, as there is usually more of other people's property in it uh, rather than their own. And I have to admit, uh, writing this book, uh, it's, it certainly uh, involves a, a, a lot of uh, other scholars, uh, certainly including Bill himself uh, and, and the other two co-panelists here, Beverly and Professor Joseph Liao, whom I've also I'll be enlightened in, in many of, of, in the course of my academic career. So I would like to just talk a bit about this book, uh, what, it, that, what this book is all about and, and some of the key themes. And in fact, I look forward for, to, to, to the panel discussion uh, subsequently. So as Bill kindly introduced, uh, the title of this book is China's Political Worldview and Chinese Exceptionalism. And I specifically look at the idea of international order and global leadership. And this is a theme I would say uh, when I was writing this book uh, in the course of my PhD, uh, some of these, uh, the, the rise of China was certainly a fact, but I, I, I did not expect that uh, right now uh, it has even greater implications uh, given what we're seeing about 
uh, China's rise and its implications, uh, not just uh, to China itself, but also for international order and global leadership. So I, I hope to sort of highlight some of the key themes in the book and perhaps um, how they, they, they speak to the present day uh, reality of Chinese politics and Chinese foreign policy. So my book, in, in this book, uh, the main idea in this book is that China perceives itself as being exceptional, the idea that it is good and different. And I argue that such a perception or mindset has influenced its approach and its practice of international relations. And I, I would also argue that the key driver behind China's international politics is a sense of exceptionalism within, within the CCP. So in other words, to understand how China behaves, why it behaves in a certain way, I would argue that it is this sense of exceptionalism within the Chinese government that drives its foreign policy, that drives its international behavior. So the question can be posed, uh, why is exceptionalism relevant to our thinking about international politics? Uh, the first question that, that, I, that I've highlighted up here was exactly the, the, the question that uh, my examiners asked me. Don't all countries consider themselves exceptional? So what is the value of exceptionalism if everybody all countries consider themselves as ex exceptional. Uh, my response, uh, my modest response is that, but unless we are prepared to argue that all countries consider themselves exceptional in the same way, then the differences that constitute the reasons for their self-perceived exceptionalism have to be accounted for. So in other words, different countries, uh, the United States, China, Japan, India, even smaller countries, Indonesia, Singapore, we all consider ourselves exceptional, but for different reasons. So some countries, uh, for instance, the United States, which we're very familiar with, often allude to a sense of um, manifest destiny, the sense of divine providence as the bedrock, as the foundations of its exceptionalism. Uh, countries like India look to their, their long civilization uh, as, as, as evidence for the exceptionalism. So the point is that different countries consider themselves exceptional for different reasons. And in my book, I, I argue that this sense of exceptionalism is important uh, because one, it, 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 rep, it reflects, it represents a means of fostering national identity. In other words, who we are as a nation, as a country. And for the study of international politics, the idea of what should we do if we are exceptional, then how should that be reflected in our actions, in our foreign policy, in our international behavior. So the big question, I guess, uh, the, the short, uh, if, if, if you want a, a short answer, is China really exceptional? What do I think? It, in my view, at least, its leaders and public intellectuals think so and try to act so. In other words, I would argue that exceptionalism is not a game of bluff. We got to take the Chinese seriously. It's not a, simply a case of saying, all right, so long as China has all this uh, it, 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 it will basically act the same way as the West. Uh, certainly some of its behavior may mirror that of the West, but I do argue that its leaders and public intellectuals do conceive them of themselves, do conceive of China as being exceptional. However, linked to this idea is that China also needs to take the world as it is and not as what it wants the world ought to be. So in other words, uh, and, and this goes back to the idea of what a great power is supposed to do, the idea of responsibilities. And it goes beyond saying what we want and also to recognize what others want and to find a working compromise. I use this analogy of, ex of, of, of a child to adult to illustrate what I mean. When, you talk, when, when the Chinese policymakers, leaders talk about China, they often 
uh, speak of China as a rising country, as as still part of this uh, developing world. And and to be fair, uh, one could use its GDP per capita to to say that okay, China is still considered part of developing world. However, as China rises, uh, the idea that it is now move on from child to adult, and for us here who have children, we know that the worldview of children. Uh, however um, interesting it might be, uh, at some point they would have to recognize that they have to live in a world of adults where there are existing rules. So a, a very, I, I've got young kids myself, so the idea that if, if a young kid wearing a nappy when he's two years old and running around, few people would, would make noise. It, it seems quite normal. But if he grows up 20 years old and he still does the same, he's going to be arrested. So the idea that you are, if if as you, you need to take the world as it is and not simply insist on, the, on that unique way of viewing the world. Uh, we are often very familiar with the idea of something with Chinese characteristics. It could be socialism with Chinese characteristics. Um, so all sorts of the idea that Chinese characteristics is being placed into an idea, sorts of allows China to claim that as being unique. Uh, but the idea we could ask is, is China really exceptional? And, and the idea of Chinese characteristics, while I agree that, that, that there is some value of, of trying to understand what a Chinese thing, at the same time, China lives in the world uh, and, in, and, and that world also forces it to sort of respond, uh, not just simply to insist that its own way of working is inherently unique. So what is in this book? I, I would just highlight uh, five quick chapters. Uh, I won't be discussing them. If you're interested, we can ask a bit more specific questions later on in the Q&A. I basically focus on key themes and topics that are relevant to China's international relations and how they reflect Chinese exceptionalism thinking or otherwise. So I focus on the, uh, the several themes such as, number one, international relations theory, uh, how Chinese scholars talk about uh, Chinese IR theory and what these theories demonstrate about the way Chinese, the, the Chinese view themselves as being exceptional in the world, the way they theorize the, the study of international relations and how that is linked to exceptionalism. I also discuss about China's national identity and, and how the national identity is being framed within an exceptionalist framework to highlight that the Chinese are different uh, primarily from the West. And of course, China's national image and claims to global leadership, and this is a huge topic of late, given President Xi's uh, comments just last month about the need for China to, to promote a, a more favorable, a more attractive national image abroad. Uh, the Belt and Road initi Initiative, uh, for, for a number of years, it has been a centerpiece of President Xi's foreign policy. Uh, in the last one or two years, we haven't heard a lot about it, but nonetheless, it's something to look, to look at as in specific, uh, specifically the economic nature of China's uh, statecraft. And of course, I also look from views from Southeast Asia, being based in Singapore. Uh, I, I had an opportunity to speak to scholars in Vietnam, Indonesia, and even back home in Singapore about whether do these countries think that China is exceptional? How do these countries view China, China's attempts to present itself as being good and different in Southeast Asia? And the final chapter, which was incidentally uh, not part of my orig original manuscript, but given when this book was about to send to print, the coronavirus pandemic struck. And so I've, I thought it was, an, it was important to sort of uh, also provide some uh, early reflections about what, how, that, how the coronavirus pandemic uh, and the story and narrative that the Chinese government, even up till today, is trying to portray itself as being 
exception. So areas of further study, uh, these are some themes that I feel in the course of writing my book that it has opened other alternatives and opportunities and even challenges for future study. Uh, for instance, China's national identity and its engagement with the modern world. Uh, as a political scientist, we often uh, ignore other insights from other fields of social sciences, such as anthropology, uh, history, even philosophy. Uh, and, and we sort of uh, get very focused into to, to, to the way of, in, into how political science ought to be done. Uh, but in my view, uh, to understand China, in fact, to understand any country, you need to, to blend in both insights from the, in the political aspect, but also from the uh, areas in other social sciences. Uh, Chinese political behavior and leadership personality, this has been uh, we, we are, it's very evident that President Xi has stamped his, his personality and mark on China's foreign policy. So what, how, how does that actually reflect? And this is certainly a very interesting area uh, for future study. And last but not least, and this may be specifically so in Southeast Asia and perhaps so also in some countries in the West, Chinese information operations and China's modes of political influence, how and to what extent Chinese information operations sought to discredit the West. And we've seen this very vividly in the course of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, given the, the whole vaccine competition, vaccine diplomacy competition between China and the West. Uh, so I conclude uh, with actually this very interesting movie. Some of you might have watched it. Uh, I had an opportunity to watch it uh, last year. And it's a movie, Eat Man. And it's a very interesting movie because uh, it talks about this uh, martial art character, uh, Eat Man, uh, who went to America from Hong Kong, I think. So he wanted to send his son to the United States uh, to study. And this is very common. Uh, many Chinese uh, people uh, send their, their children to America uh, in the hope of having a better life some kind of American dream. However, what happens, uh, and, and I'll leave, I, I will not have divulged any spoilers, what happened was that the experiences he, he faced there certainly dampened his understanding as well as his, his child's view of, of what America uh, ought to be like. So it, 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 the, the idea that the West was originally imagined as a place of opportunity and promise, however, that was not the case. Um, that uh, it's, It is also a destination fraught with negative negative habits, including discrimination, as we've seen also, uh, unfortunately, uh, in the course of the past couple of years. But at the same time, and, and this is where the, the movie Eat Man, I, I thought, highlighted this, this contrast uh, that Chinese social life also has its fault lines. So notwithstanding the fact that the West has problems, and this movie brings up some of these problems very vividly, uh, what I appreciated about this film is that it also highlights uh, the, the peculiarities of of Asia, of China, and how that also creates uh, tensions, not just between itself and the West, but even between chi among Chinese people uh, themselves. And so this is my final slide. Uh, what I want to argue, uh, and, and this is some, some, some thoughts, is that social and cultural identity are crucial elements of a country's political worldview and claims to exceptionalism. Uh, I would also argue that identities are not inherently fixed and immutable. Yeah, they can change depend on, on the situation. They can change depending on political uh, regimes. Uh, also, polit politics does not have final say. It's interesting coming from someone who graduated from the Department of International Relations. But as I, the more I study politics, the more I, I, I invest my time in, in, in reading and understanding China, realize that politics does not have the final say. 
And also, political parties may not have the final word. So the, I, I leave us with this, uh, this line that China's future story and the story that the CCP wants to tell about China's future may not always be one and the same. So that's it, I think. Uh, thank you, Bill. I hope I didn't exceed the time allocated. Over to you. Thank, thank you, Ben. Uh, excellent presentation. Uh, so Dr. Lope, will you give us your comments, please? Thank you, um, and thanks very much, Ben. Um, we seem to have a little bit of a Singaporean relationship with RSIS contingent going on here, um, but I'm very pleased to join you from the UK, and I'm delighted here to be part of this virtual environment to discuss, um, but also more importantly, as what Bill said, to celebrate your new book, which was really an absolute pleasure to read. I think um, it addresses a very timely topic, one that is located in broader debates very important debates about the purpose and consequences of China's rising power for the existing, albeit evolving international order. And as you mentioned at its core, the book contends that Chinese foreign policy is best explained by Chinese exceptionalism. And so it takes as its starting point, the, the fact that we need to have a better sense of how Chinese exceptionalism shapes China's worldview, its identity, and in turn, its foreign policy. And in particular, it is this understanding of this exceptionalist mindset that gives us better insights into China's foreign policy and international relations than mainstream international relations theories. Now, the book argues, um, and you mentioned this just in your, in your brief talk as well, um, that, and I'm quoting here from page 15, that the Chinese political worldview is that it perceives itself as being exceptional. That is, it is good and different and that such a perception has influenced its approach to the practice of international politics. And so the book goes on to unpack good and different as meaning being morally superior and being virtuous in its practices, but also having a very distinct way of perceiving the world that is located in, that is grounded, and that is fundamentally influenced right, by its culture, traditions, and history. Now, you mentioned this earlier, and it's certainly one that I was struck uh, when I was reading the book, which was, well, wouldn't most countries, if not all countries, see themselves as exceptional, as good and different? Um, and you mentioned as well the U.S., certainly, in terms of uh, if you, even if looking back into you know, America's history, that juxtapositioning right, between the U.S. as you know, representative of the new world you know, in support of self-determination, against, you know, this old world Europe of, you know, imperialism and colonialism. And that sort of sense of self that accept, that exceptionalism that persists very much till present day. Now, this is a point that you, you rightly acknowledge on page 19. And I think the important thing here lies, as you highlight, in examining Chinese exceptionalism, in particular, given that it is one of the key great powers right now, but also given that the content of that exceptionalism lies not in emulating the West, but in utilizing, and I quote here from page 21, the cultural and ideological repository of its own traditions and history to distinguish itself from the West. So not about emulation, but rather about distinguishing and also in a way establishing its superiority to the West that I think is really interesting here. And so this is the main premise of the book, 
Now, given I think that all too often scholarship on China sometimes tends to take a rather outside-in perspective, this book is refreshing and indeed much needed in that it seeks to examine how Chinese exceptionalism is manifested in Chinese theoretical scholarship, in speeches, in interviews, and you even looked uh, at a song, right? <laughs> so that was really interesting. And so for me, I think the book does two things particularly well. And let me say a few words about each of these in turn. The first is that the book, I think, does a good job in terms of highlighting the selective remembering and particular framing um, of, of, of narratives, right? So it does a good job in terms of showing how the CCP, the regime, has created and controlled this master narrative of Chinese exceptionalism drawing on historical grievances embedded in you know, the broader century of humiliation to show how China was subject to foreign intervention, to foreign interference and bullying, and using this particular narrative to construct a rather binary portrayal of the West as bad, as evil, juxtaposed against the China as benevolent, peaceful, and morally superior. So it paints a succinct picture concerning the mobilization of particular narratives and history for strategic purposes. In some way, reflecting a somewhat insecure TCP, dealing with the domestic changes, um, what you bring in in terms of liquid modernity and how that introduces seemingly more fractured state societal bonds. And so in this light, the, the master narrative of Chinese exceptionalism is used to do several things. Right. It's used to promote Chineseness as a national identity. It is used instrumentally to mobilize nationalist sentiments to unite the domestic public. So in a sense, it helps to deflect any blame onto external forces. Um, you talked about how this is also embedded in scapegoating the West. Um, and it also promotes and projects the goodness of the Chinese state relative to other countries. So it cultivates in that sense, a good versus evil discourse, um, and in a way helps to create mistrust of our foreign powers. And so this in turn helps to cement CCP rule. And here we can think about the notion of autocratic legitimation that is fundamentally based, I think, on a combination of foundational myths as well as performance. So the idea here that the CCP has done so much uh, and it is the only party that can continue to lead China to further greatness. And so the idea here that you discuss about the Chinese dream as a unifying discourse that encapsulates, you know, really such emotional and historical underpinnings and one that can only be realized if the CCP remain in power. Um, and so while I totally agree on these points about the construction and mobilization of a master narrative, I was also, as I, as, as I was reading the book, I was also wondering about counter narratives or marginalized narratives that either seek to challenge, resist, or subvert the dominant narrative. And I wondered how much of these exist right now, or is there simply no space for this in Xi's China? And so one gets the sense from reading the book, and I think quite rightly, that this space is shrinking. And this is a point that I will pick up uh, at the end of my comments. Now, the other big thing that I think the book does uh, really nicely has to do, uh, is concerned with the idea of global projection and reception of Chinese exceptionalism. Now, the book, I think, makes very clear that Chinese foreign policy reflects a you know, far more confident China, one that believes that 
time is on its side uh, and that is favorable, right, in terms of pushing for changes and reforms in the international order. And this is manifested through various avenues. So there is, you know, this expected deference, right, that you talk about in the book from, you know, all ethnic Chinese. It doesn't matter whether you're a mainland Chinese citizen or whether you're an ethnic Chinese citizen elsewhere, um, that there is this expected deference to, uh, to China. And so, you know, this made me think, you know, it's a nod to the kind of cultural hegemony of the traditional Sinocentric system. We can also see this manifested in avenues of global governance. So a China that is far more confident, wanting to alter aspects of the international order that it sees as unfair and unjust. And you, in the book, you talk about the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, and how China seeks to show to the rest of the world that it can offer an alternative and better version of global governance. One that creates more equitable outcomes compared to Western global governance, so here we see the language of, you know, win-win, neutral respect, and seeking to portray China as a more, you know, non-hegemonic power compared to the more interventionist policies of the West and particularly the U.S. But I think what the book does in no uncertain terms is to highlight the tension and indeed the stark disconnect between not just the projection of such narratives, but importantly, how it is received. So first, by demonstrating how China's geostrategic attempts to use economic statecraft vis-a-vis -vis the Belt and Road have not really been very successful, right, in establishing greater political influence for Beijing in the region. And secondly, as you highlighted, by examining three regional states, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Singapore, and how they have responded to China's rising power. Now, here, I really appreciated the attention that you paid to the agency of state right, to push back, to resist, to negotiate, and even to bargain, right, as you mentioned here on page 201, that the influence of China is not necessarily a one-way street, despite Beijing's might, and that many of these leaders actually use this relationship with China to serve their own political agendas. And so while there is some general, perhaps, admiration of China's economic development, there is clear suspicion, clear anxiety, there is an acknowledgement among you know, many regional states that the Chinese dream is first and foremost about advancing China's national interests rather than any broader regional public good. There are views, as you mentioned from Indonesia, um, that Chinese endeavors to reshape the institutional architecture is undermining ASEAN centrality. And that really, when you think about it, um, China is not exceptional. It's not acting any differently from other great powers behaving geopolitically and wanting to extend its influence within the region. So I think the, the book very nicely captures the ambivalence and the skepticism of any claim to Chinese exceptionalism and the fact that many of uh, much of Chinese actions within the region is undermining this credibility and claim to exceptionalism. And as, as I was reading these particular chapters, I did think about the, the state of Southeast Asia survey, right? That um, I think is very much in line with the, the findings that, you've, that you, you articulate in the book that China is the most distrusted uh, power within the region and that actually a very low percentage of regional states believe China to be a benign power. And so I think in doing so, you nicely highlight a very healthy realist dose, perhaps not to get caught up 
in you know, shiny discourses and slogans of inclusiveness, of building a community of shared future of mankind, and that Chinese claims of benevolence and non-hegemonic behavior do not really match up to the reality. And I think we see there the tension, right, between a China that wants to project this image of a peaceful, benevolent China versus one that we see sometimes in terms of its actions, in terms of its um, worldview of a siege mentality and its nationalistic responses to external criticisms. We see this tension between the two um, projections and the receptivity. And I think Ben weaves this disconnect very skillfully uh, in the analysis. Okay, whilst I'm praising the book, I also wanted to add some criticality to my comments. And so in the remaining time, I'd like to focus on three aspects that um, came to my mind as I was reading the book. And so let me walk you through this um, in, a, in, a, in a second. So the first one here has to do with evolution and change. Now, much of the discussion I think in the book is centered almost on a post-2012 narrative for good reasons, right? It's a post-Xi Jinping uh, narrative. Ben is looking at these speeches, policies, and initiatives. But I think less clear to me, at least, is how the book treats the notion of change. Now you, in the book on page 74, you cite Wang Gangwu about how the notion of Chineseness is dynamic. It is living and changeable. But to me, at least, we get a sense, we get less of a sense of how Chinese exceptionalism is evolving. So questions that come to my mind are, has the content, nature, and degree of Chinese exceptionalism changed over time? If so, in what ways and what causes it? Or is the notion of Chinese exceptionalism constant throughout China's foreign policy and worldview, but it's rather something that is dependent more on how the Chinese leadership mobilizes it? So I'd like to hear maybe a little bit more um, on how change and evolution factors into the conceptualization of Chinese exceptionalism. The second broad point um, has to do with global IR and knowledge production practices. Now the book I think does an excellent job in terms of demonstrating how Chinese IR seeks to challenge the, the universality right, of Western IR theory and modes of governance. So the book walks us through four scholars, Yan Xuetong, Ting Yating, Zhao Tingyang, and Zhang Feng, as representative of these domestic schools of thought within China that draw not just on Chinese history, traditions, and culture, but are rather selective in highlighting particular aspects of Chinese history, tradition, and culture. And so here, Benjamin points out quite rightly that it is problematic to think of Chinese history, culture, and tradition as something that is given, as unchanging and uncontested, right? And that actually this highlights um, or it neglects the highly politicized nature of these narratives. And so he concludes that Chinese IR scholarship, as the quote here on page 59, remains largely Sinocentric in nature. It is mostly anti-Western and anti-American, and it is premised on an essentialized view of the East and West, and fundamentally that they, they possess little universal traction. Now the book, I think, although it doesn't explicitly address these, these tensions reflect some of the larger questions surrounding global international relations about pluralizing and diversifying knowledge production practices. And so here I'm thinking about 
the potential tensions and pitfalls that you know, Amitabh Acharya, Andrew Harrell, and others have highlighted in cautioning against you know, ethnocentric, almost nativist theorizing, right? And the need to build theory, perhaps from unique experiences, but to build up and to have greater applicability beyond that immediate context. And so given that we are seeing increasing what I imagine increasing statification of Chinese knowledge production practices, something that, that Benjamin acknowledges as well on page 43, when he says that scholarly writing is not a purely academic exercise for the pursuit and dissemination of knowledge, but also reflects individuals and institutional positions vis-a-vis the Chinese government. So given this particular statification of Chinese knowledge production practices, I guess a question that comes to my mind would be, well, what does this mean for the development of Chinese IR scholarship? But also more importantly, what, what does it mean for its contribution to the broader global international relations agenda? Okay, the third last point that I had has to do with normativity, audiences, and validation. So Ben writes on page 30 that his fundamental argument is, you know, for China's worldview, and I'm quoting here, for China's worldview to be accepted by others, it would have to demonstrate an affinity with the West, an appreciation of ideological differences in its international relations, instead of constantly presenting itself as non-Western. But surely this notion of being non-Western also has some actual analytical purchase. And so this leads me to a series of questions. Um, in some ways, the book is maybe a little bit more critical than I thought it would have been. And so some, some questions that come to my mind would be, is there anywhere where we think Chinese exceptionalism is working? Can Beijing continue to present itself as non-Western without necessarily demonstrating an affinity with the West or some kind of complete universality, but rather still finding coalitions of audiences that subscribe, that buy into Chinese exceptionalism? I think right now with Biden, we see um, you know, the US pursuing more ideological othering, so to speak, and perhaps more value-driven coalitions and so the question would be, well, what impact does this have on Chinese projections of being good and being different? And are we moving forward? Are we going to be seeing the world much more as a perpetuation of these sort of essentialized West, non-Western binaries? Or will we fundamentally see some elements of hybridity and compromise? So I'll leave it there. And congratulations again on the book. Okay, thank you, Beverly. Uh, Professor Liao, uh, we look forward to your comments. Thank you, Bill. Um, and uh, hi, Ben, thank you for the invitation to, to read and uh, share some of my thoughts uh, on the book. Uh, congratulations on, uh, on a fine job. Uh, it was a, a very good read, I really enjoyed it. Um, I have a few comments, but uh, I was also looking at the, at the Q&A as well as paying very close attention to what uh, Beverly has just shared. So I really don't know what, what more I can add, but let me say a few things. Let me say a few things nonetheless. Um, first, um, let me outline very quickly three reasons why I, not only did I enjoy the book, but I commend it to everyone um, who is tuning in. First is of course, um, this book is an important 
effort to to look into the in a sense look into the the psyche of Chinese decision making, right? Uh, what what goes into the process? And I think um, there's a lot of literature out there uh, on this uh, to be sure. But I think uh, as Ben himself outlined and uh, Beverly uh, sort of uh, amplified as well, um, I think Ben takes a, a very uh, interesting and unique uh, approach towards this question. And that in and of itself is worth, uh, worth uh, looking closely at. Second, um, again, echoing uh, what, what uh, some have already, uh, or, or certainly Beverly has already identified, um, is the importance of trying to view China from lenses that are not predominantly Western IR centric or Western IR oriented. Yeah. And uh, in this particular case, you have uh, not just a non, uh, so-called non-Western, non-US, even non-Chinese uh, perspective, right? From someone who uh, importantly has access to Chinese language sources. And that is important because those of, those of you, those of us who do research using Chinese language sources, you know how, how difficult and challenging it is translating some of these Chinese concepts into English. Yeah? Um, you know, some, the, the English vocabulary sometimes just doesn't capture the essence of, of these concepts. Uh, and uh, that's something that uh, I think is uh, commendable here. And, and third, it's written by a, a, a young scholar who I greatly admire and respect. Yeah? And it's an added plus that he was trained in LSE because that was where I was trained as well. So that can only, only be good, right? <laughs> okay. Um, but having said that, let me, let me um, in, the, in, the, in the spirit of uh, pushing you and your framework further, let me just uh, raise a few, a few questions that came into my mind as I, as I went through the book. The first is, uh, is uh, it's also an obvious question. I mean, you pointed, one, pointed out one obvious question that, that would uh, sort of arise in anyone's uh, mind, right? That uh, what's so exceptional about uh, Chinese uh, exceptionalism? There's a second one, uh, which is basically, what is Chinese exceptionalism? Yeah, um, I know much more about what it is not than what it actually is substantively. Right uh, from from the book, um, um, you, the point is is basically made over and over again that um, it's not the West. Chinese exceptionalism is not uh, the West. You know, it's it's good and it's different. Uh, that, that's how you you had uh, set it up. Um, but what does this translate to in terms of Chinese behavior, right? In international affairs, how do I know Chinese exceptionalism when I see it? You know. Or does it just exist in the realm of the of the narrative? Yeah. So I give you an example. Um, we, you know, the obvious other case that uh, anyone would juxtapose it uh, to is the U.S. Right? U.S. Uh, manifest destiny, uh, city on on a hill. Now, the interesting thing about the U.S. is, uh, if you think about U.S., uh, if you think about American and U.S. claims of exceptionalism. Um, it not only claims, for example, to have a, a, a unique political system, it claims to have the best political system. And in many ways, it has no qualms about trying to export it. Yeah? In fact, that has created a lot of problems for American foreign policy. Yeah? China, on the other hand, uh, if we take their word for it, claims the opposite. You know, in every state, you have your own system. And China is not interested in exporting political systems or political ideologies. Um, which actually is ironic given the fact that they express their views 
on international affairs in a very highbrow moralistic tone, right? As you yourself uh, pointed out. So, so um, this this raises the the issue, the challenge that that you also identified that um, you know these issues of identity are often fluid and malleable. Yeah. So the question is how to avoid seeing everything that is different, i.e., different from the West as an expression or a basis of Chinese exceptionalism. Yeah. Um, if, we, if, we, if we do that, I mean, if we see everything that is not Western, however you define it, as therefore an expression of Chinese exceptionalism, then uh, you know what happens is that the, the, I suppose the analytical traction of the concept itself uh, becomes a bit too diluted. Yeah? So I'm, I'm not saying that you do that. I'm not saying that you dilute it, but it's uh, take it as a cautionary note yeah, about a, sort of a slippery analytical slope. Um, so that's the first uh, uh, sort of big question. The second big question is, um, to what extent is Chinese exceptionalism path dependent? Yeah, so, so, so let me elaborate on that. Um, if exceptionalism is about fundamental questions uh, such as you know who, who we are, what we should do, what we stand for, how does it intersect with the environment, the international environment in which the state finds itself? Yeah? So again, uh, as an example, um, you write that uh, perhaps as an expression of Chinese uh, exceptionalism, it perceives the international order as right for change. Um, so is this because of China's sense of exceptionalism or is it a sense of opportunism on the part of uh, China? I.e., you know, you, you recall the discussions of this, uh, that, that uh, China, um, a lot of Chinese intellectuals were hawking this, this notion that the U.S. was in decline or is in decline, is still in decline, right? Um, and the, the window of opportunity uh, for China uh, is now. Um, of course, advocates of, say, power transition theory, uh, for example, they'll argue that there's nothing exceptional about, exceptional about this. You know, the Chinese, Chinese behavior is in keeping with, uh, you know, simple power politics uh, explanation. Yeah? So, so, so that's the second thing. The third, uh, also something that uh, Beverly touched on, which I would um, uh, second, is the sense of a historical perspective and context to the, to the entire uh, enterprise. Uh, is there any substantive difference between Chinese exceptionalism conceived under Mao, under Deng Xiaoping, under uh, Xi Jinping, or wh whoever else, you know, uh, uh, Hu Jintao, um, uh, Jiang Zemin. Um, as an extension of this, to what extent are we complicit in perpetuating this notion of uh, Chinese exceptionalism. So here what I'm referring to is, how would you um, say locate yourself in relation to the body of literature that, that uh, echoes how China is not just a state, but a civilization, a timeless civilization and an unchanging civilization, yeah? uh, a civilizational state. You know, ideas like this reinforce the sense not only of difference, but of moral and cultural superiority on the part of China. Yeah? So you argue that there's a tension between China's sense of exceptionalism and its actions that seem to undermine it. 
right? Such as uh, the disputes uh, with with neighbors, and I think that that was a very important point uh, of comparison that you that you highlighted. However, by way of this this narrative of uh, not just Chinese exceptionalism, but how it's rooted in this this uh, timeless, unchanging sense of uh, civilization. The fault, the problem, the fault uh, is not China's, but everyone else's. Yeah, in terms of how they or we, for that matter, do not seem to understand and appreciate the deep reservoirs of China's identity and sense of destiny. Yeah, and I think you've, uh, you know, from the RSIS or Singapore Vantage, we hear a lot of this, right? <laughs> um, so, in other words, if only we all all of us would get out of the way of this exceptional civilizational state's rediscovery of itself. Yeah. Um, is that how um, we are... Uh, is that the, the logical conclusion of viewing Chinese exceptionalism from this uh, culturalist and uh, civilizational lens? I, I don't know, you know but um, it seems to be... It seems to be a, a sort of a logical extension of that uh, that discussion, which for me personally, I'll be very, very uh, wary and cautious of. Yeah. So, so I just wanted to raise these points. Of course, these points uh, should not detract from the fact that this is, again, I say for the record, a very fine book and one that provides a very important, uh, important marker on the path uh, for those of us who want to try to develop a better understanding of Chinese behavior on the world stage and what uh, what accounts for it now, yeah. So uh, I congratulate you again, Ben, for for this fine book. Uh, RSIS is very proud of you, um, and uh, uh, you should rightly be very proud of yourself as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you, uh, Professor Liao. Um, ben, lots to. Lots to respond to. Can since we are at the halfway point, um, and what I'll give you maybe ten minutes to respond, and then we'll kind of we'll, there's a bunch of questions, good questions, and we'll go through them. I I will actually add a little. Uh, this is the chairman's prerogative, chairperson's prerogative. Um, Beverly was talking about um, how the book treats the notion of change, and I was thinking how did. Do you talk about that in your uh, second to last chapter when you talk about this shift from exceptionalism to universalism from, as Professor Liao said, kind of exceptionalism is what China isn't to kind of this universal is what China or the China dream is? Is that what's going on? But anyway, yeah, so you have uh, 10 minutes or so uh, to kind of respond. Thank you, uh, Beverly. And thank you, Joe, for your wonderful comments. It, I haven't been thinking so deeply ever since my PhD virus. So thanks for asking those <laughs> tough questions uh, again. And, and I'm glad that uh, to, to sort of provide some form of preliminary reflections. Uh, I might just end up writing a, a journal article all over again in response to your, to your, to your uh, questions. Uh, I think this idea of uh, sense of historical evolution, how, how this idea of exceptionalism, is it, is it, um, is it something that is only much more clearly manifested in the last eight, nine years of presidency or, or has, it, has there been other variations of, of exceptionalism or what, would, or what uh, people like Wang Gangwu will say, Chineseness? Uh, I'm slightly, um, I, I, I think, okay, and this is just my, my view, I do think there is some raw material out there in that sense that, that the Chinese use 
in in order to interpret their own identity so it's it's not a case where um that it's not a case where it's just purely used in a very instrumental uh, real politic kind of purpose where where the chinese use exceptionalism as as sort of a to to, to sort of insist to say this is what i want and and we're different so i do think there is some raw material uh, which it's being used uh it's very hard to say what that raw material is but my sensing and, and this might be a bit of a very broad uh, broad sweep but my way of reading is that uh, in in contrasting uh, china and the west uh, if if this can be if if one could make that contrast is that the west has this idea of progress very much embedded into it in other words it's the idea that and and you see that in many elections uh, in many western countries where it's al- always the next person that comes in with with promise Uh, something better than its predecessor but my view in at least in china is that it's always harking about the past so the glorious days are not in the future but in the past and i think it's this idea of time uh that is that is part of that raw material which the chinese use very well very skillfully uh to to highlight its sense of of exceptionalism in other words what president xi is doing what people like hu jintao jiang zemin they are doing it's simply going back in time and to say that hey this is what china was if not for the if not for for western imperialism and all that kind of stuff we would have been a great nation and they used that to a very strong effect in in expressing and in highlighting the idea of chinese uniqueness certainly if you look in terms of actual practices it is very difficult and i have to admit it is very difficult to say this policy is a clear sign of chinese exceptionalism so so to say that uh and and you're right uh, as as uh, joe to 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 highlight that it's often a case that the chinese would say we are not the west we are different uh as you also rightly pointed out we would not want to interfere in country politics in ex- no external interference even though uh, many times it does but i think the point is really about a case of a uh, framing who china is in reference to what it is not and unfortunately that is the situation china finds itself in and i think i've highlighted in my chapter on liquid modernity and identity that because of the very nature of a one party uh state uh, this is not to say that there are there are no counter narratives as badly put it out there in china but many of these counter narratives are being muzzled to the extent that we don't hear about them so because of that overarching single party dominant narrative it becomes very difficult for china to sort of look itself and 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 reflect and say okay this is where i might have gone wrong even and this is very interesting even in teng xiaoping's uh, uh subsequent rectification of the errors of mao the verdict was that mao got mao was 70% right and 30% wrong so it is almost a case that for the party and this goes back really to the the, the entire party apparatus of the ccp that it is that it is it is not able to sort of find another alternative because it's a single party so even in sort of uh making a departure from its predecessor the chinese leaders will have to acknowledge that what the predecessor did is actually right so so it's it sorts of feeds on to that 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 narrative that is the party is in control the party is infallible um it's a very good book by frank pk who who my i i i've been really uh, enlightened by who talks about the party in in a form of a very sacred image it's, it's almost like the party is god so to speak and 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 in that sense uh, that the party cannot err the, the party is almost um 
in a sense, infallible. And that really creates the myth of, of, of Chinese claims to exceptionalism. Uh, this is not to say that, um, that a party is not being criticized, but it is that broad myth, and I'm using myth in, 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 in a scholarly tone in the sense that it is that story, that narrative, that master narrative that a party tells itself, it tells its people, uh, that creates that sense of exceptionalism. And this is certainly much more, uh, much more vivid uh, in the past decade. I think how the Chinese view it is that they, they look at what the West is doing and say, hey, this is very clear sign that the West, you guys are trying to keep us down. You guys are trying to set the rules of the game so that we will never uh, overtake you. So, so in, in other words, the, the Chinese look at the West as a, as a mirror of what it doesn't want to be and says that we can be better than you. However, the problem lies in the fact and, and this goes back to my earlier point that China has to take the world as it is. And this is where it is also wrestling. It realizes, uh, and, and for a long time, it has used, for instance, economic growth as validation of its social policies. In the last five years or so, we've realized Chinese economic growth isn't that very different, uh, maybe slightly more than, than, than in some of the developed countries, but not, no, no longer, it's no longer the, the, the star of the show. So in other words, the Chinese are coming to realize that there is a world out there, uh, there is a reality, international reality out there that they need that they need to live with, as opposed to just simply claiming that we are different. Uh, and I think right now the Chinese do not have a very clear uh, answer to, to to the broader problems of modernity, of, of being, in in the sense, uh, uh, what one would say a responsible great power, where where you they, they are required to have additional respons responsibilities beyond uh, just the well-being of their citizens. Um, okay. Uh, I, uh, on, on Joe's question on whether it's this whole idea of uh, the path dependence and whether ch is it Chinese exceptionalism or just simply opportun uh, opportunistic politics, uh, my view is that the way I see it is at least it's probably both. Uh, the, the Chinese are certainly masters of opportunities. Uh, there is this saying we all know uh, they, they view crises as opportunities and, and, and view opportunities as, well, I guess the, the, prop, cri the roots of crises as well. Uh, so I think they certainly see, and, and there are scholars who talk about this period between, particularly in the aftermath of the 2008-2009 financial crisis as the period, the window, golden window for China to stake its claim. Uh, they sort of view America as being disorganized and certainly the years of Trump uh, there were scholars who, who viewed that as, as, a, as a win for China. But evidently, uh, even if we don't agree with many of Trump's policies, what he did was basically to stand up to China. And, and, and so I think uh, some Chinese scholars are also calibrating uh, that kind of, of opportunity and, and the consequences of, of Trump. But at the same time, I would argue that uh, nonetheless, there is a strong sense of Chinese exceptionalism pervading uh, the thinking of, of Chinese scholars uh, and even policymakers. The idea that we, well, they look at the problems in the West. Uh, the best example I can think of is last year when we when you saw the coronavirus pandemic running havoc all over the West, uh, and you look at the the, the kinds of of, of rhetoric uh, statements, newspaper reports in China. It's very clear that the Chinese view that as, hey, look at what is happening in the West. Millions of people, thousands of people dying, and we are, we are fine. 
Um, I, I, I still recall earlier this year, uh, this picture of students in Wuhan celebrating mask off during graduation or many countries in the West were, were, were still caught um, in, 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 the, in, in the coronavirus pandemic really highlights that kind of uh, mindset that the Chinese uh, citizens, and this is not really, this is not just purely a matter of party politics, but even Chinese citizens do have that kind of, of buy-in. Uh, is it a case of because they, they are not aware of what the world thinks, or is it because of the Chinese government being able to sell that narrative and quite successfully to, to the Chinese citizens of its own exceptionalism? So I would say that it is not just about foreign policy, but certainly it consists some kind of traction even within Chinese domestic uh, politics, and it legitimizes the Chinese CCP in the eyes of their own citizens. Uh, I, I'm sure there are many more questions, but perhaps we'll stop here and I'm happy to sort of discuss some of the others uh, in the last half an hour or so. Okay, thank you, Ben. Uh, you've actually answered a lot of the questions that the uh, people in the audience have asked. So I will go down to uh, Tim Hofer asked, um, with China as a highly distrusted power and few countries genuinely believing in its benevolence, how can its exceptionalism survive? This, is, this goes back to one of your chapters, not just what China is saying, but how are, how are other countries responding? If you could just, I know you've already talked about that. I mean, there's a related question about, you know, there's lots of quite serious and bad things going on in China. It's not just the problems in America. China's had these big problems with Xinjiang of um, putting hundreds of thousands of people in camps and, and other things, as well as using the exceptionalism. Is this part of exceptionalism? Is sort of standing up to, to um, other forces? Hmm. Okay, uh, is, would, would that be for me? That's for you. All right. Uh, I think the question of can Chinese exceptionalism survive? Well, I, I think that if you ask the Chinese, it's not so much on whether Chinese exceptionalism can survive, but whether the party will survive. Because the, the future of, of Chinese exceptionalism or, or whatever that, that idea of that we are good and better is very much tagged to the fortunes of the CCP. So, so long as the CCP survives, it will present itself to its people, to its citizens, and, and certainly to the outside world that it is good, it is different. Uh, and, and that is why uh, it's, it's always about the domestic concerns in, in China because it's very much so unlike, and, and this is where one might say, unlike countries which, with multi-parties, with multi -parties, uh, democracies, elections, uh, everything is, is stops at the CCP. And so long as it survives, China is it's accepted. The, the idea of its narrative will continue be, be, to be perpetuated. Uh, and that is why the, the great fear is that if it comes down like a deck of cards, then basically uh, we, we will say that, well, uh, this Chinese exceptionalism is clearly uh, misconstrued. So it goes back to really about uh, the, the, the survival of the party. I, I did, Sorry, I didn't get the second question about Xinjiang. There was some uh, internet. Well, it was just, yeah. Um, as you were saying, it's very common and popular in China to talk about American decline and um, and point out the problems that are happening in the US. Um, but one of the 
people ask a question about, well, there's problems going on in China too, in Xinjiang, in Hong Kong, uh, threatening Taiwan. Is that, how does that fit into exceptionalism? Is it, is, maybe it doesn't, maybe these are, it doesn't fit into, it fit into this exceptionalism argument, or maybe it's a sort of manifestation of uh, exceptionalist ideas in Chinese and Beijing's policies. Well, I, I think that's question. a great question. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't think about that. Uh, but the way that the Chinese would probably view these issues, and, and to be fair, the Chinese, and speaking to Chinese scholars, uh, they often say that China has enough problems of its own. So they're not saying that Chinese exceptionalism means uh, everything is good and great about uh, China. I think to be on the contrast, on the contrary, they are quick to say that um, there are many problems at home and they will point to maybe not so sensitive issues like Xinjiang or Hong Kong, but well, things like growing inequality, stuff like that. So does it, I think the bigger question is, does it undercut the essence of Chinese exceptionalism? Uh, I think the way I'm using exceptionalism in this sense is not so much to say that, uh, and this is where it, it might be a bit different from American exceptionalism, because oftentimes American exceptionalism is used in, in a sense, uh, I guess we are relating this to foreign policy. So American exceptionalism is very much linked to American leadership uh, of the world. Certainly its problems at home, uh, in fact, one might say validates the American way of life because of the fact that you are able to change your government every four years if things go wrong. And that is seen as, as, as some kind of, of, of benefit or some kind of built-in uh, uh, checks and balance. But in China, there is no such thing. So I think in terms of Chinese exceptionalism, the way I view it at least is that it's often used more for foreign policy and, and less of being used as a way to say that everything is good and fine uh, back home. I, I don't think that's what the Chinese would claim. Very interesting. Um, so one of uh, my colleagues in the IR department, uh, Professor Peter Wilson has a question for you. Did you ever take any questions with Professor Wilson, Ben? I see you didn't take, you're a PhD student, so you didn't take courses. Anyway, he is an IR theorist uh, and he, his question is, Hobbes following, following Thucydides maintains that states or kingdoms living in the condition of anarchy are motivated by gain, fear, and glory, but principally fear. So uh, Pete asks, what is the main motivation of Chinese foreign policy? Is it gain, fear, glory? Is it something else? Well, uh, my, my short answer would be, it is about ultimately about stability, stability back home, stability of the party. Uh, one might say how this is related uh, to China's foreign policy. And I think this is where, if, if you look at Chinese history and also some of the, what, what its leaders are often saying, they often view the, the West in, in a very, in a way that, that seems to be, it's almost like the West is out to get us. So we need, in, in order to ensure that we, we are not at the, the sharp end of Western uh, policies uh, towards us we and, and thus cause our our country and the party to be unstable foreign policy is really about uh well promoting uh, china's voice on the stage so that the voice of the west will not be as loud and 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 so the west will not have that opportunity to sort of keep china down i think that's how i i see it uh it's about stability back home so if you use that as a starting point foreign policy is about ensuring that nothing interferes with the stability 
that's fundamental. I would, I, yeah, yeah, I would add because I um, I was writing uh, around the time of the uh, Beijing Olympics in 2008, and I found a really fascinating quote from one of the main architects or the main organizers of the opening ceremony. So this is an artist um, explaining what he was trying to do with the opening ceremony. Um, and he said that he wanted the world to love China and, um, and that Xi Jinping and others talk about having a, a cute or a lovable or a, a nice view of China. So my, I guess my thought is that it's about desire, that China desires acceptance, China, the Beijing leadership desires um, recognition, uh, diplomatic recognition, but also recognition of what you're talking about, of China's exceptional civilization and politics at once. It desires um, recognition of uh, Communist Party, not just rule, but how great the Communist Party has been for China. So. It's if you want to think of it in terms of these more emotional kind of fear, it's not fear, it's desire. Um, and to me, that that explains a lot. And I think that actually you're doing that in your book um, is talking about what China wants. Um, what does China desire uh, in a broad sense? <clears throat> One of the questions is for you, Ben, and for um, Professor Liao. And it's it's more of um, kind of uh, traditional IR power politics question and about what is the response of Southeast Asian countries um, kind of in sort of in sort of raw, raw power or kind of what is it? I guess uh, Professor Lok does this too. What is the response of Southeast Asian countries to China's um, exceptionalist arguments? Um, are they are they buying it or are they balancing? Are they doing something else? Should I should I go first? Yeah, sorry, Ben, you go first. Okay. I guess all, all, all three panelists can answer this. Yeah, thanks. I think that's a great question. And I guess being, being in Singapore, we are seeing this being played out almost every other day in, in the news, in the, in the real world. Uh, if, you, if you look at the, the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, Yusuf Ishak Institute has got this very interesting annual survey. And in this annual survey, uh, I think the latest one, it go, and this is very interesting because notwithstanding the problems in America last year, the fact is that uh, opinion among elites, uh, policy elites and, and, and scholars, it was that China was actually more problematic than in America, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they also viewed Chinese influence as much more than America. So I think that that is, they, they acknowledge that China's influence is greater, but they also acknowledge that the problematic aspect of, of Chinese uh, influence and a lot of it has really got to do not so much with what China does at home, uh, be in the issue of Xinjiang and Hong Kong, but it's really about territorial grab in the South China Sea, um, some of the border disputes. Uh, so I, I think Southeast Asia countries, in in my reading, uh, and I'm sure Beverly and and Joe would be able to provide more insights, are a highly practical lot. Uh, so we're not so worried about, not so concerned about what happens in China, but really about how that affects uh, disputes, uh, issues of sovereignty. That's a huge thing in Southeast Asia. So so long as, uh, so and, and that has been one of the areas where, where China's territorial disputes with some of the claimant states in the South China Sea has created a lot of uh, backlash. But at the same time, and this again is a very common argument, these countries nonetheless look to China for 
for economic uh, uh, for the economic dolls. Uh, so, but maybe I'm not sure whether moving forward, whether that would be that attractive, given that Chinese economy is slowing down. You see a lot of crackdown on on some some of the Chinese champions of technology. Um, so I, I think that economic aspect is is in, is getting a bit more problematic. Not to mention, and this goes back to the coronavirus pandemic, China has not opened up at all. Uh, I was just writing a commentary, and it would seem that among uh, the, the leaders of the world, President Xi has has is is has not traveled out of China for almost twenty one months. Uh, in fact, he's not going for this weekend G20 summit. So that creates a lot of, I uh, would say, I mean, you, you've got to be out there to be seen, to be heard. You can't just rely on your on your foreign minister. Uh, the decision maker has been there. And to that extent, one might say, uh, well, uh, this, this pandemic uh, has also affected uh, China's reputation um, abroad. So I'll just leave it at, at that. Uh, definitely. Do you have any sure. uh, response? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I think the, the key thing in terms of looking at regional responses is to recognize the variation, right, um, that regional states have in terms of their perceptions of China's rise. So we can't just put a blanket statement that, you know, Southeast Asians see China as this. Uh, I think there are some commonalities, but I think, you know, as, as um, ben might have mentioned, you know, countries that like Cambodia, like Laos, like like um, Myanmar, are perhaps more drawn, right, under China's geoeconomic orbit than say others like Malaysia, like Indonesia, that might push back a little bit more um, onto China. So I think we have to understand different countries' perspectives um, and understand the variation there. Now, if, if I may just jump in uh, very quickly on the question before and tie it to the first question. I mean, I think what Ben was saying in terms of, yes, we have this sense of Chinese exceptionalism. I, and I agree that under Xi Jinping, the CCP has done a remarkable job in terms of highlighting and mobilizing this particular narrative. So much so, right, that it has great resonance within the public. So I don't think it's necessarily just a top-down sort of effect, but rather there it permeates, right, domestically. Um, and we see this in terms of more nationalist sentiment, um, you know, against anything that is external or criticizing um, the country, right? And I think in terms of what does this mean in terms of what does China want or what is driving its foreign policy? I agree that stability and desire um, are key factors, but I would also add uh, on the international realm, China wants respect. I'll just make two quick points to add to what Ben and Beverly have said. Uh, the first is um, we not only have to consider variations across the region, uh, even within uh, certain countries. Yeah, um, The narrative of Chinese exceptionalism uh, has purchased among certain constituencies and communities within Southeast Asian countries. Yeah, uh, people do buy into it, and uh, this is the this is the 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 the, the sort of uh, funny sort of uh, 
um, effect of this uh, whole narrative about the rise of China and uh, the re-emergence of China, right? It has uh, catalyzed um, nationalism among Chinese citizens, but it has also catalyzed a cultural reawakening in certain uh, Chinese communities outside of uh, China. Um, so that's the first thing. But the second thing is that as far as uh, Southeast Asian states are concerned, they, they don't really care too much for what uh, uh, external powers say. They want to see what external powers do. Yeah. So China can claim to be as exceptional as they want, uh, but uh, so long as they are prepared to contribute to development and not undermine, not do anything, you know, to undermine uh, stability in the region. And that goes for every other external uh, power for that matter. Um, they will be welcomed by uh, Southeast Asian states. Yeah. Yep, that's it. Okay, thank you. You actually answered a question from Josiah, LCIR student. He wanted to know about uh, sort of alternative narratives of Chinese exceptionalism outside the party. Um, and uh, outside of China. So you, you're talking about how it, I mean, I've seen that too, how um, the, uh, some overseas Chinese communities are really um, motivated and drawn to this, this view of Chinese exceptionalism, not surprisingly, because it uh, validates their, their cultural identity. Um, let's see. One of the questions was a response to uh, Dr. Loke's comments um, and the thoughts of this anti-Western or non-Western image, um, will, it, will, it will it continue to be successful uh, with China's out developmental aid and assistance activities, uh, especially in uh, Africa? Um, so I'm just, yeah, I'm curious too, how, how does, are there audiences for Chinese exceptionalism in Africa, either in terms of the, the rhetoric or in terms of policy? Um, uh, ben, do you have any thoughts on that? Sorry. Yeah, I think, so I guess if you look outside the West, I would say um, there is actually quite a fair bit of uh, attraction uh, towards the Chinese model. I was having some conversations with, with foreigners, I wouldn't name the countries, and one key difference uh, in, in terms of how he, he views it is that, uh, for instance, in the Middle East, uh, the, the idea is that, well, China doesn't send in the military, whereas the Americans will send in the military, and that is a very clear line uh, that, that, that countries, uh, say, in the Middle East or even in, in, in Africa would, would sort of say, okay, uh, you you guys sending the money, but you know the, the, it's it's fine. We're happy if you just bring in the money, but uh, not the military. So I think that really impedes that sort of gives uh, China quite quite a fair bit of, of positive, quite favorable image. Uh, we know in in countries like UAE, uh, got a friend there, and yeah, the 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 national the narrative about China is a very positive. Uh, sure, they are they are aware of some of the problems, but. You know, for even for issues like the Xinjiang issues, but they view it as a domestic problem. So not so much, very less, very, uh, there is not a lot of uh, hostility towards Chinese policy. So I, I would say, uh, if you look outside of the West, uh, certainly China has a 
a far more favorable image. But I think at the same time, and this is I've also been talking to different other scholars and, and people um, in, in African countries, and they, they've also come to realize that Chinese economic statecraft uh, is, is not just uh, about giving them money. There, there are also strings attached and um, that, that, that awareness comes in at a later, at a later date uh, because of, of China's, I guess one might say China is a later player in this game. So, but once you realize that, hey, in, in some ways the Chinese would behave like any other countries going in, uh, the problems that, that the Chinese has, they are not unique. In fact, uh, they, they might they might actually accentuate, amplify some of the problems between, say, Chinese workers and and and, and the workers in those countries, uh, because it is often perceived as China bringing their own workers and thus the, the country uh, does not actually benefit. So there are indeed problems, but maybe early on uh, things seem to be um, much more favorable. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that as well. That's what made me think about whether your one of your conclusions that China has to live in the world that take the world as it finds it, and you were stressing that it's a sort of a Western-centric or American-led world. Maybe the world that China is living in is the world of the global South, where it's appealing using various. Um, policies and rhetoric to try and, um, so, you know, just to appeal to different audiences um, beyond the West. Um, and that, that's, I guess that's what I've noticed in the past 10 years and that a lot of the academics and media people from China that I talk to, in some sense, they don't care about the West anymore. They're over it. They've, they've decided that the West is the opposite. The West will never respect them, as uh, Dr. Lok said. And therefore, they're just going to go to South America and Africa and Asia and be successful there. Am I, am I exaggerating that too much? I, I think you, you certainly, uh, you, you're right to point that out. That seems to be the, 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 the logic out there. Yeah. Does anyone else have a comment on that? Or, I mean, from the panel? I see people thinking deeply. I, um, okay. I, I wouldn't go so far to say as um, they've gotten over uh, the, the West. Um, it, it would be an identity crisis for them if they did, uh, because the, the West remains, uh, to, to at least to some extent, very much their, their reference point. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, who, who they are is, uh, as Ben pointed out right in your book, who they are is as much defined by who they aren't uh, or who they think they aren't. Yeah? So, and the West, the West uh, plays a very important role there, I think. I think yeah. I would, oh, sorry, go ahead then. No, it, it's, it just reminds me of, of, of an interview I had. Uh, I think it might be in the book. Uh, one of the one of the respondents said that, uh, well, we don't like the West, but the West has set these high standards. They don't live up to that, but at least those standards are there and we can try and emulate Whereas they view China as the standards are lower, so what what's there to it's it's almost like saying, uh, well these are not we would rather strive to be a, of of a higher standards. Of course, we can disagree about those standards, but at least in the minds of of even members of the global south, uh, they view the West uh, as as having some kind of uh, higher standards. Whether they live up to that or not is a different thing. So that's something to to keep in mind as well.
Okay, Beverly, sorry. I was just going to say, I think I tend to agree more with Joe, um, point, Joe's point in the sense that this is, I think it's too far of a stretch to say that the China disregards you know, the West and doesn't want to play within that particular world. I think the US and the West remain important framing points. And indeed, China still seeks very much to crave that recognition, right? I think what Bill talked about um, from the West. Uh, and so I think where we will see China in these various aspects, I think it is going to be speaking to different audiences. Um, and we will be seeing sort of different policies put forth, some areas where it's playing within the existing rules of the system, but it can reform. Others where it's frustrated that reforms are a little bit slower than it would like uh, in terms of building alternative visions of, of global governance moving forward. Okay, actually, I have a question for uh, Ben and for the panel. Um, ben, your excellent book um, generally treats Chinese culture in terms of Chinese traditional culture. Um, and I'm curious, and you know this because we've discussed it before, what, what happens if the Chinese tradition is not just sort of Confucianism, um, and Chinese, you know, Tang Chinese poetry, it's also socialism. It's socialism is a tradition in China too. And how does that work with exceptionalism? Because Marxism, Leninism is a Western ideology. It's a European, it's a Eurocentric ideology. Um, and I'm just curious whether you, in your interviews, whether you kind of, uh, people were, were talking about being anti-West, but also being Marxist. Uh, are also being communist or socialist. Thanks, Bill. Uh, thanks for that question. Uh, it reminded me of this very interesting conference I attended uh, in, 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 I wouldn't mention a country, but it's, it's a communist run country. Uh, it's not China. Okay, so I just leave it at that. Uh, some years ago during my, um, during my PhD, and that conference was actually discussing socialism and Marxism. And I presented a paper. I had no idea why, why they asked me to present something. Uh, but in that conference, uh, I recall a, a Chinese scholar and also some other uh, scholars from the socialist bloc who said that, um, that many Chinese actually don't know about socialism. I mean, they, they learn the sort of the, the, the usual standard repertoire, but in terms of going deep into the socialist tradition, there is very little knowledge. Uh, in, in other words, the, the idea is that China is no longer as socialist as it ought to be, uh, or even communistic as it ought to be. So I, I, I would say, uh, and, and you rightly pointed out that um, Marxism, it's certainly derived from the West. Uh, and that is why the Chinese always say socialism with Chinese characteristics. So it's almost an attempt to try and fit that socialist uh, Marxist model into a, a Chinese container. Um, it could be Confucianism, it may not be, but it's almost, it's a, it's, it's a huge assumption. And I'm not an expert on, 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 on that kind of Chinese culture discussion, but it would seem that what they're trying to do is fit that Marxist, that Western, whatever Western into the Chinese container and sort of appropriate that for their own in order to criticize the West. And perhaps one point I should have mentioned, and this has been something that I was thinking about for a while, is that in recent times, it would seem that the Chinese criticism towards the West is that the West is not behaving how it ought to behave. 
that means the West is ab- sort of abdicate, abdicating its Western tradition, uh, which for a long time, and, and this is where if you are liberal institutionalist, you would, you would say that, hey, it's, it's the Western tradition that has actually helped China. And some Chinese scholars are actually criticizing the West for being less faithful to its original traditions, uh, of course, with the exception of democracy. Uh, but other issues, um, they are saying that, well, the West has sort of shifted and, and they're just out to contain us uh, and, and not being a generous player in the sense of, of embracing, uh, being uh, open um, to other ideas. So that, that seems to be a, a case. It's almost like a love-hate relationship uh, that, that China has with the West. Uh, it, it doesn't like the West in certain things, but it can't run away uh, from, from, from that Western uh, substance that it sometimes criticizes. So I, I, I'm not sure if I make sense, but that seems to be what is happening right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, socialism or official ideology in China is not just a source of strength for the Communist Party, but it's a source of, source of anxiety. So alongside desire, you have anxiety. An, that's what I see in China, there's enormous anxiety, whether it's seen in terms of this window that we've been talking about of strategic opportunity. Because usually when people talk about the window of strategic opportunity, they're saying, oh my gosh, it's closing soon. We really need to rush forward and take advantage of American decline before everything changes. Um, So I think that the anxiety is also in terms of identity and about um, Western and Eastern and all these things um, and how Marxism causes, I mean, leads to contradictions and anxiety in Chinese identity is to me is quite, quite interesting, fascinating. To send the, so we are at uh, 26 after the hour. Um, we need to kind of wrap it up soon. Does anyone from the panel have anything else they'd like to say? Uh, I guess first uh, Joseph and Beverly, and then we'll let Ben have the last word. You don't have to anything, but I'm, there are so many ideas floating around. You might, I'm, I'm interested to see what other comments you have. I'll just very quickly uh, just build on what you were, what you ended with, uh, Bill, earlier about uh, uh, socialism uh, in China, because we are seeing today at this very point a very interesting uh, sort of developments, right, uh, which uh, could signal a, a new stage in this evolution of um, Chinese exceptionalism, you know, with uh, Xi Jinping's uh, not just uh, common prosperity mantra, but what he's been doing um, to uh, big tech and uh, you know um, uh, all all the big players, and um, uh, and this is already an extension in a sense of his uh, anti-corruption uh, campaign, um, and at least the narrative underlying it is um, this assumption that is an effort to return to the the original. Um, objective of the of the communist party right which um as we know ironically um is a very is an archetypal sort of leninist state leninist party uh which actually abandoned leninism right uh so so that in itself is a very interesting uh contradiction there um yeah i just wanted to to highlight that uh good book ben <laughs> Beverly. 
Sure. Just very quickly, I think to pick up on your point as well, Bill, that I agree. I think um, when we examine China's foreign policy, we need to have a better attention of what's going on domestically. And a lot of this is driven by, you know, what Ben talks about in the book, a rather insecure CCP, uh, what you talked about in terms of the anxiety, right? We often think that because it's not a democracy, it doesn't have to pander to the domestic public. But on the contrary, the very fact that Xi Jinping has re-centralized, you know, and sucked up even more authority, both in terms of the party, but also in terms of his own personality and the legacies of the China dream and the manifestation of this through the BRI, means that a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot at stake for the party and for the leader. Um, and so this creates huge anxieties uh, in terms of its time frame, in terms of fulfilling what it needs to do in that sort of window of strategic opportunity. Okay, Ben, uh, yep. any last words? Right, I'll just make one quick uh, comment. And this is probably something I did not address in my book, but uh, right now it's certainly in the headlines, left, right, and center, and that is the cross-streets relations and the Taiwan issue, uh, which uh, if, 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 if sort of to use this Chinese exceptionalist framework uh, in, in cross-streets relations, I think what is happening right now, uh, at least in my view, is that the PRC is trying to cast itself as better than ROC. And I would say right now, it's really this contestation uh, for, for legitimacy across in, in the cross-streets relations that is going to be the stiffest test of, of, of the Chinese government, simply because this is not just a foreign policy issue. Uh, one might even say uh, the West may not be such an important, the West is only important and problematic insofar as it, it is part of this cross-street uh, dynamics. So it's something to really keep close, uh, close tabs on uh, to see how this will develop and, and whether uh, and how does the Chinese government intends to show that it is actually uh, better uh, than Taiwan. Uh, one sensing I get right now is that uh, both the PRC and ROC are not opening up simply because uh, it's about who, in, in terms of the coronavirus pandemic, because it is about a contest, about showcasing who has a better, who, who is able, able to provide, um, who, who is better in, in combating the coronavirus pandemic. So that has sort of made only these two uh, these two governments, uh, the only governments uh, in the world that has not yet quite opened up. So we, we, we shall see in the coming months. Okay, well, thank you, uh, Ben, for presenting your book today. And thank you, uh, Beverly and Joe, for your excellent comments. I'd also like to thank the uh, people at the uh, communications department, at the LSCIR department, Joe Roberts and Zoe Adams, and uh, Wilson King and Terry. So uh, thank you and goodbye.